Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So hey everybody, welcome to episode 298. Two more episodes to go till we hit 300. Uh, my name is Simitra and I am in Toronto, Ontario and I'm joined by Henry Lepis Jr. in Seattle, Washington. How's it going? And lockdown, sheltered, storage, what are you, storage in place? Sheltered in place, sheltered sheltered in place. place or lockdown? Or? Sheltered lockdown, yeah, in in the quarantine is, uh, well, not quite quarantine, but by definition. I not suppose. quite quarantine. No, Mark Ribbon down in San Jose, California is on the line. I mean, I was going to put that, that Gordon Kelly guy, he wrote something today, but I thought, ah, let's put him in here. But then I thought, I read mm-hmm. it and I went, no, yeah. not after the education I got from Mark. <laughs> oh, what was he? Is it, was he saying that uh, Apple's in oh, trouble? They're going to die? Well, no, he was Doomsday. saying, think about the, oh, um, the storage options on the iPhone 12 are, yeah. are like going to be under what people are going to expect. Like, oh, you know, of you, course. Yeah, you know, and, yeah. and the thing about it is, the funny thing about it is, okay, so, you know, before iCloud and before the services and stuff like that, yeah, maybe you did need a bigger and bigger phone every year but i'm finding i've got like a what a, a 128 now and i and i'm barely scratching 64 gigs on yeah. it because i'm using cloud services right so so his yeah. uh, his argument does not hold water well you know he, yeah so if you can save you can save 100 bucks on the phone by buying a smaller capacity phone you know because you don't need the capacity right right yeah like who like who needs i think on the ipad pro you can get like a terabyte of storage ssd oh people are going to be yelling at their screens now some people need it <laughs> <laughs> they need it. What do they need it for? Are they running? Are they running Mac OS on it? Well, probably, probably it? actually, people who do a lot of heavy duty video processing are the ones who would need. Mm, yeah, yeah, or or like that that video or that uh, Ferrite app that I was trying out that seemed to be pretty. I mean, like yeah, when you're doing a lot of processing like that, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Let's have a look here. Just do a quick fact check while we're on the on the thingy. So we're just checking here. Yeah, look at that one terabyte. You can get one terabyte space on the iPad Pro 11 inch or 12.9 inch. That's crazy. Like what? 
do you, oh, that's more space than most people have on their Macs, you know? <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Crazy. We were just talking about, um, if, like, one article I didn't put in the show, I mean, it was um, this Gordon Kelly guy that, you know, Mark brought, made me wise to last time, was talking about how the, the iPhone 11 Pro, or sorry, iPhone 12 Pro is going to be undersized in, in terms of capacity. So, like, it's going to be, instead of the base will be like 64 instead of 128 or whatever. And oh no, doom and gloom. And, and then, but I was saying, like, my point was, well, with services and stuff, I've not needed nearly as much space as I as I used to have on my phones or devices, right? Because it's all up in the cloud now, right? And then, you know, backups mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff too. Yeah, it's, and apps are a little smaller because of app thinning and all that. Mm, maybe, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's nice to be able to have a few episodes or movies or something cached on Netflix or whatever you're using. Um, maybe some special videos, you know. It used to be this crazy thing we used to do called Air Flight, you know, where you could get into like this little tube and it would shoot you like, you know, across the continent, you know, and occasionally they would have, they had entertainment systems because, you know, you can't just, you know, and I would often put a movie on my phone or my or my iPad in case the, the system ever didn't work. And a few times I've had to resort to that, but those days are probably gone forever. <laughs> Let me <laughs> tell you kids about the days before the virus of 20. 20, uh, the big 20 virus, yeah. yeah. You alpha kids, you gather around. Let me tell you a story. Oh. Hey, by the way, fact check, I found out that alpha is the name of the kids who are born to millennials today. It is? There you go. So yeah. exactly. Because Generation Z and then the are, are not the children of millennials, right? They'd be like the younger siblings. So, yeah, well, they, so the children the, millennials are now alpha we because we've gone past Z. Yeah, we had a meeting today and they were talking about, they, he mentioned alphas are the children of millennials. So I guess the people who are in their you know early 20, late 20s, Early thirties, I guess. Is that millennials, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, are you a millennial? I forget. I mean, are you a millennial? millennial? I am technically one of the oldest millennials at yeah. thirty nine because uh, I'm just inside the Positive the revised ancient. cutoff, which is annoying. I've always yes. identified with X. So, so Paulo is basically an alpha, I guess, right? <laughs> yeah, <that> <laughs> yeah. It would definitely be a very alpha thing to just in millennial thing. I guess to have um, fur babies be counted in this this scheme. Fur babies, yes, fur babies. There's a new there's a new term for you. Alrighty. Um, I don't, you know, I, to be honest with you, I didn't listen to the last episode because I had that book I had from the library and I had to return it and I wanted to fill, you know, listen to a few more chapters before I took it back. So I didn't actually listen as I normally do when I'm walking the dog to the, uh, last week's episode. I don't have a fact check. So maybe when I get back on it, I will. But do you guys have any, any gripes with last week's show at all? No, I wasn't was looking awesome. for a fact it check. Perfect. <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, and by the way, for the folks out there, yeah. So they're, the, uh, they're, if you check out the cover art, and I don't know, I don't know if it's running properly in uh, in Overcast. He's, uh, I read somewhere he's having trouble with with uh, cover art. But if you're using Breaker or very many other apps, or if you follow us on Twitter, you'll see that there's an image that went with last week's show. And by the way, we just added our most our last ten episodes to YouTube as well. But um, thanks to, uh, to oh, that's what I wanted to put. My, that's my pick for tonight, Rambo's uh, app, right? Anyway, um, but yeah. So guess who the people in the image are? That's the. I mean, like you said, I think a couple of weeks ago, Jaime, the first three are like their giveaways, right? Right? Like, you know, based on hairstyles. <laughs> I got to take a look at the actual website now because yeah, I, I to don't look. see the cover art in, <laughs> in Overcast, which is weird. You're right. Oh, well, I, I no, you got to look at the, you got to look at the last latest image. I'll post the latest image because it's, I got one more, one more person to add to it because he, he was a late, late edition, but I haven't updated the app. Where, Where is it? At MTJC.fm? Oh, okay. Well, if you're into the collecting them all, there are different versions of this image, right? 
because there was the image because when you when I publish I publish a square version and then when I put it up on uh, mtjc.fm it goes up as what's called a header image so it's like wider than it is tall and then the image that I put on on Twitter la- actually the last image I put on Twitter is got, is the most up to date one let me let me put that in Slack here so you guys can peruse it so I get everyone except I don't know who person oh the newer image like here's a far left image is the only one I cannot identify there's more there's more the far left there's more yeah there's like yeah yeah exactly gray hat right like lady tim like i don't know oh far left you you know facing in or facing out of the image uh yeah. stage left go. i think so so oh stage left. as, as we were oh, facing I assume that was uh tammy right wait do i have stage left incorrect i thought left it was from the perspective right, right of is a, on your left left is on your right you say you're if you're looking at the audience that's left and right right if you're on the stage looking at the audience okay i can't oh, so it's from the performer's perspective not from the audience perspective yeah yeah okay got it so stage right is what you're talking about Jaime. yes that's right that's that's wait, one i don't wait. get either yeah you're gonna put this one into the into the uh Slackomatic. You guys can look at Slack's working today. How about that? Yeah, it's amazing how Slack going down just brought down the entire world yesterday. How do you feel as a cartoon emoji, Mark? What do you what do you think about? Yeah, I don't love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not it's not I don't think it's representative of you either, right? So Yeah, yeah. I don't think it really looks like me. Yeah, yeah. The nose is wrong. I'm still here. I thought it was me that went away. Hmm. I was having weird trouble with my internet really early this morning. And I was Whoa. Like, oh, can you hear us now, Tim? Yeah, just my my what internet. Happened? while well, I did something in Slack. <laughs> oh, Slack is such a dog. It, it kills. If you ever, man, have you ever try to do a, like a, a serious Xcode build and do heavy Slack stuff on a laptop? Forget it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, no, I just, I just went to, when I said I went to open an image in Slack and I don't know if you guys heard me that say that, but yeah. And then all of a sudden you, all the audio went distorted and what have you. Anyway. Well, um, so just here's a quick uh, couple of hits on the whole COVID situation. Um, the first, the, the big news we know in Toronto, we now know that we're in the middle of a pandemic because the Canadian National Exhibition of 2020 was officially canceled today. Ooh. And it has only been canceled once in its entire history. And that was for the World War, the last World War. One or two now, just have to fact check that. The last one was two. Well, World War Two, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> I don't even know if it was around in World War One, to be honest with you. When did it start? Wait, so this is a uh, yearly event? Annual, yeah, annual, yeah. They have one in. They only shut down once? I mean, the war was more than one year. No, they only shut down once. Well, it doesn't say whether they shut down for a year, but yeah, the only time it was ever disrupted. So it's been around for 142 years. Yeah, so that would have been through two world wars, right? No, mate? Or Mark, I should say? Yeah, World War One yeah. was 19, roughly 1914, uh, I think, through 1918. Yeah, yeah. But um, well, was, I mean, was Canada in World War One? I don't know. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Canada was. Yeah, we were okay. there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we had a whole um, Passchendaele and a bunch of things, Vinnie Ridge and things like that. We, had, yeah, we have uh, veterans and all that kind of stuff as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, of course, our mayor, Mayor um, John Tory, said uh, today that uh, yeah, it was great fun having a double waffle, double patty, bacon jam, cognac, maple syrup burger. I thought that would really sort of hit the spot with Jaime. Mm. <laughs> it's perfect. I'm like, you know, it, it sounds like a very American thing. Let me introduce you to the, the KFC double down sandwich yeah. and we can yeah. share culturally in this exchange. Or go to the heart attack grill. Yeah. yeah is that the, you probably have this KFC thing too. We have like, it's like, um, 
oh, what was it like two chicken breasts with like wrapped in ham or something like that? Um, that's that, that's the double down. It's yeah, yeah. It's, it's um, the the bun, such as it is, is made yeah. of fried chicken. I forget what the right, interior yeah, is, yeah. like a burger or something. AFC, right? Yeah, because I, I got I had one once. I only ever had one once, and it, it was they were brought in for two. I was in the, at a customer's, and they, and they brought them in as a sort of uh, hey, try this out kind of thing, right? And and my description of it was it's the kind of thing that if you were a guy and you didn't want to cook anything, you would get to the fridge and you grabbed a couple of slabs of chicken, a couple of slabs of meat, and just shoved it into your face. That's what this was, right? You guys never do that? Just go to the chicken and, or go to the fridge and grab a ch- hunk of cheese and just grab whatever it. you got. Sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's mm-hmm. very, very male sort of style of, of uh, instant cooking fare. So. Real-time follow-up. I looked up on Wikipedia and it claims here, the double down offered by KFC is two pieces of fried chicken filet instead of typical bread containing bacon, cheese, and sauce. Right. The sauce would just make it messy. <laughs> yeah. And your fingers would get burned by the by the fried chicken, too. Oh, well, I guess fried, fried chicken's technically a finger food, too, right? Because you normally just pick it up and eat it, right? Finger looking good, as I, as I like to say. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. It would still could be kind of messy and greasy, I think. Yeah. So one of the other things about, about uh, Canadian National Exhibition is it's very close to Ontario Place, which is where our, I think it's called Budweiser Stage is now. Um, it's changed names. Some, you know, beer represent beer company sponsors it. But they are, that's where all the, the shows are during the, the exhibition. Exhibition. So, you know, I have tickets from Steely Dan, you know, I've seen Doobie Brothers there, seen Sting there, seen like an umpteen acts in that particular venue. And usually when you go, when you get a ticket for the show, you get free entry into the, the CNE as well, right? So mm-hmm. I, to be honest with you, I used to go to the CNE when I was a teenager and then, you know, kind of woke up and went, this is horrible, disgusting, gross stuff. Um, mm-hmm. But it's a tradition here, I guess, in Toronto. People love it. And I think people love to hate it too, right? So, mm-hmm. so as delicious as the double waffle, double patty, bacon jam, cognac maple syrup burger sounds yeah. Yeah. I think I would actually rather have a double waffle, double fried chicken, you know, chicken breast, bacon jam, yeah. cognac, maple syrup yeah. sandwich. Are you, are you riffing now? No, because that's the, that gets the whole chicken and waffles thing, which is delicious. Okay. Right. Think of that with just, you know, with, with some, you know, nice, delicious butter. Well, the maple the syrup, front. cognac syrup, right? The, yeah. The, yeah. That, that, I think that really sells it, right? Yeah. But think of it with, <laughs> with two, two fried chicken breasts in there instead yeah. of the, ch- mm-hmm. the burgers. I think I think that would be way better because of the waffles. Chicken waffles is a natural yeah, thing. I think you've been stuck inside too long. Now. <sighs> yeah, I think so. Yeah. Got me right. yeah. lamenting, you know, not being able to go to L.A., to Hollywood specifically, I think, for yeah. Roscoe's chicken and waffles. And right, yeah. It's, yeah, famous it's kind of waffles, janky right. inside unless they've changed the but exterior. The best in the places last are. The best places are. Yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah. Good food to eat. You're not you're not there to look at the windows and the, yep. the siding. All right. Okay. Have you had chicken and waffles? It's it's a treat. Um. You know what? I don't know that I've been. I had. I don't think I have specifically. Yeah. I can imagine. Yeah. I can just have to use my imagination because yeah, that's totally not on my diet anymore. Right. Well. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. That, yeah. that, yeah. that mine, would be. That would, mine neither. Yeah. That would be a vacation day for me. For yep. Sure. Yep. Yeah. Getting nasty looks from my wife, but that would be a vacation day. <laughs> uh. Anyway. A cheap day. Unless she served it, then it would be a different story right um yeah so um and and wrapping up the covid news well of course you know we've been talking about uh about this the plans to return 
return to work um, are certain, starting to be made by major corporations. Apple is not uh, to be absent from that. And I think uh, they're sort of leading the pack in this in that they're saying they're planning to have um, staff, some staff return back to work. Uh, those who, as they say, as it says in the article, um, either need to be physically on site to work like hardware engineers, that kind of stuff, or there are people who can't, uh, can't not work or are having trouble working from home. Yeah. I don't know if that means they have small children and they're driving them crazy and you have to get out of there, but that's another story altogether. But uh, yeah, and I think that, you know, lots of lots of discussions are being uh, bandied around, around uh, how we're going to come back out of this. And, and I think that for, I, I, my, and it says this in an article too, and I think for developers, since we don't necessarily need to be on site to do stuff, I think we're probably going to be one of the last uh, groups that, that will be returning to work. And, you know. I agree. Be- yeah, hard, for hardware, unfortunately, you have to kind of have to be there with the physical hardware, but for software, you, you don't most of the time. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, for sure. I think that was a big reason why Twitter, and I thought this was incorrect. I was like, oh, what's wrong with these news journalists? They, they don't actually get the real news. They, you know, just wrap it up in the wrong way and, and misinterpret. And it sounds like Twitter's folks will be able to work from home indefinitely or in perpetuity. Yeah, we, yeah. which I guess makes sense because they're a, a software product, right? It's it's not like uh, to Mark's point. It's not like oh, well, we're making a prototype, you know, physical uh, casing for the new Mac Pro. All right, well, it'd be hard to do with that from home, but enhancing the Twitter service, dealing with this infrastructure, I'm sure there's probably data center folks that might occasionally have to go into physical stuff sometimes, but a lot of their business can just be done online and therefore from home. So, so why not? I, I mean, it's funny that, you know, remote work used to be the exception to the rule, right? Like, I mean, many companies, you know, Apple included, you know, you had to move to Cupertino. That was sort of the, the rule or you had to move to New York or Texas or, or what have you. Right. And, uh, I, they've been relaxing things a lot lately. I think in the last, you know, three or four years, we've even noticed people appearing on Twitter talking about their work, right? And social networks and stuff like that, right? So I guess because it's it's how you communicate with the world, right? So, but it's interesting to see that that even companies like that, I mean, they've had no choice. Everybody's had no choice but to figure out how to how to keep the ball rolling uh, while working from home. All right. Um, this next article from me is uh, an article on how Apple reinvented the cursor for the iPad, and it's an interesting article. I know we've talked a bit about the the new cursor in the iPad OS, um, specifically around the time that the um, the iPad Pro was reintroduced. And of course, my internet is now being goofy. Um, yeah, so I, anyway, I read this a little while earlier. And so it's interesting because it, it does a history of, of cursors, you know, like the, the cursor we use now, like if you're looking at your screen uh, on your own, and you're on a, on a Mac and you're looking at that arrow that's sort of on an angle, it's like a 60 degree, whatever, 30 degree angle. Um, and it's sort of on its side and, and you know, you, you touch it with the, the edge that was designed by Susan Kerr back in back in the original Mac OS days, right? Uh, it's a, bit, a little more refined than the one that she did, but hers was lower resolution. But um, And then, you know, I, I think Douglas Engelbart had like a vertical arrow uh, at one point. Uh, then, of course, the cursor was also, has always been sort of a, a blinking beam in in, uh, in uh, like text-based uh, operating systems. And then and now, you know, the, as uh, Frank Federici talked about on um, his his video introducing the, the new cursor, and there's a little animated here, thing here as well that the cursor now is closer to our finger or a meat-based cursor as the author calls it here. Um, And it's a circle and it's a little dot. And and they've also borrowed from some of the stuff that they learned about with the Apple TV where you're not actually touching the screen um, to that the, you know, the the icons kind of jiggle when you you hover over them to to imply that you're being, that's been selected. And when you move from one to the other, it kind of just, the cursor just jumps invisibly. Uh, The the cursor on the iPad is not invisible. It's still this little dot thing but and also when you move into a text input area 
area, it converts from this little circle into an I-beam to represent that's you're, you're now going to be entering text. So that's kind of an interesting paradigm that if you think about it, Apple has reinvented the cursor in a sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think some of those little distinctions of what they're doing, like it, it's it's real easy for folks to be cynical about it. Be like, oh, it's so magic about that. Like, oh, but it's sort of the tactile feel, right? Like, no, like yeah. no pun intended, because you're not actually touching anything. In this case, if you're doing it indirectly with a mouse, but it's it's supposed to give you that same sense, right, in an artificial way. Um, yeah. And uh, I think it's pretty good to sort of compare and contrast where where I think there are some failings, right? Um, so I I love the fact that they took the principle from the Apple TV, right, and that the Apple TV has a very specific remote in in this GIF. Should you see the link in the show notes so those of you driving home shows them you know going through the catalog and they've selected one album or another and that works great on that platform right but uh, as a roku tv user who has been watching apple tv plus content superficially like in static screenshots it looks very similar to the apple tv version of that service but it fails because it doesn't have that same sort of little bit of extra touch, right? Because the, the Roku remote control is a very basic remote control. It doesn't have the nifty um, sort of extra touch area uh, or any touch pad area like the Apple TV remote. So the, the translation is not great because, you know, imagine with your mind's eye that, oh, when I go over um, a particular album or, or cover art, it enlarges, but it has that little sheen and it kind of moves a little bit because your, your hand is not going to be perfectly still, right? So you have a better sense of if I looked away from the screen and I looked back, which one is selected? And I have a hard time telling on the Roku. I was like, click back and forth, like, which of these is, oh, okay, okay, it's that one. But you would not make that same mistake on an Apple TV, right? Because uh, it has the full extent of the experience. And that's a very long-winded way of everything I've just said, that like what Apple has done here are little tiny details that add up to a much bigger experience that I don't think you can really appreciate from static screenshots or textual descriptions. Yeah, it's so funny I you say like that because I use, a, I use a Samsung remote on my TV and I can navigate on the Apple TV app. And, and you're right, I find that it's interesting because it, it does actually highlight the, the like if I'm watching Bell TV or, or Apple TV or Disney or whatever, um, it kind of makes the, the icon bigger, but it doesn't jiggle the same way as it does when I use my phone as a remote or, or my Apple TV remote. So I guess it's sort of a hybrid of that that. Um, Roku experience you're saying because sometimes I'm not quite sure what I have selected on my on my TV because because I guess the 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 Samsung remote is so crude you know it's got like a little um little thumb button and, and you can sort of like left and right and up and down like a D button kind of experience but it doesn't really give you that jiggle right um the other mm-hmm. cool thing about like, in this other video too that they talk about here which I didn't mention was that you know at, when you have your circular um cursor and you start to slide over to a button like a UI button um the cursor morphs into sort of a, a to highlight the button shape, you know, like a sort of a rounded rectangle, right? Uh, which is which is another real cool thing. And they've got a real slow, you know, uh, what do you call it when you slow, slow dance or slow move or slow pitch? Uh, what do you call that? What's that expression I'm looking for? Slow you know, motion? And it, well, it is slow motion, slow down, but there's a, uh, there's a, a, it'll come back to me anyway. But but it's cool that they're moving it slowly here to show you the animation. Um, 
as it happens, you know, because it happens pretty quickly that it morphs into this button. Slow jam. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> it's kind of a slow jam, right? Yeah. yeah anyway. and, and, and I think even just the, if you're not convinced, the, the first, well, not the very first GIF because it's like a man in the 1950s or 60s yeah. uh, doing something completely different. Um, but I think the, the first one that shows iPad OS. Well, that's uh, Douglas the, Engelbart, by the way, for those kids driving at home who don't know who he is. He's the guy who invented the mouse. Carry on, Jaime. That's cool. Today I learned. Um, I, I think this first animated GIF on showing what the cursor looks like on iPad OS and what happens when the cursor interacts, in this case, with the Photos app icon on the home screen. Um, right. You know, it, it, I'm, I'm using a Mac right now, and on my Mac, it happens to have a very sharp, crisp black arrow with white outline, and that works pretty well, right? I've just kind of gotten accustomed to that always being there, and it's, you know, even got the little thing where if you wiggle the mouse in recent versions of macOS, it makes it larger so you can see where the heck is this thing. Yeah, I love that effect. On on iPadOS, you know, I could see where Apple's designers would have been, all right, iPadOS is not designed to have parts of the screen blocked by something on top of something else for very long periods of time. Yes, your your finger might be in the way when you go and tap the Photos app, but then it moves out of the way, right? And and it's a very direct uh, bit of manipulation, so it, no harm, no foul. And I, I appreciate the fact that they made the cursor sort of like a ghost tiny point, you know, like, like a, like a mini you know, touchpad of your finger touching down. But they also put that together with, as it goes over something like a home screen icon for photos, it interacts, right? It causes it to, to lift up, to emphasize that that thing is there. And that's, I think a pretty good compromise, even though it does not directly replicate the finger experience. It, it feels right. like a pretty good yeah. union of the two. Yeah. There's some other videos that I didn't see on, or sort of GIF animated GIFs. I mean, you talk about the iPad being, like he said, you describes it as a most sophisticated computer right now, I guess, compared to that and the and the Surface. But, you know, compared to, say, a Mac, I, I was joking today on Twitter today that I keep, I keep finding myself tap it, tapping my, my um, MacBook screen to hit, try to hit OK buttons, forgetting that I'm not using my iPad. You know, I've been using my iPad with, with the keyboard so often lately that, that you know, I, I keep touching my Mac to try and interact with it and then realize, oh, yeah, I got to grab this silly mouse or track bar. Track bar. But, but uh, interesting, the, the, the video that you're talking about here at the, at the bottom is is the difference of scrubbing through uh, home screens uh, using the trackpad uh, or, as opposed to reaching up and doing it with your hand. Um, the last video, the last image there, I don't know if you saw that, Jaime, using gestures, right? Yeah, and for me, that feels pretty natural because I'm one of the minor few, it, it appears, who enjoys the magic mouse. Mm-hmm. And so I've gotten used to having gestures that you can manipulate what you're you like doing. like the magic mouse as opposed to the magic pad? Yeah, I always felt like yeah. for, I don't know, maybe I'm just doing it wrong. <laughs> but if I use <laughs> one of those big pads, which I did try because I, I had a, a coworker many years ago who convinced me to, to try theirs. And it just sort of felt like I was cramping up my hand. And, really? and I don't know why. It was just mm. easier for me to, to move, you know, the mouse and get major movement and then use the gestures on the magic mouse to get the yeah, other the part across of the top of it. Does that work on the iPad? On the iPad OS? Have you updated? I have not tried connecting uh, this to an iPad, so I don't know what the experience is like. For those of you people who haven't used the mouse in years, and I'm one of them, um, the Magic Mouse has like a touch surface on the top, and you can you can two finger, you can one single finger click, but you can also use your finger to swipe like 
you just have those little wheels where you can sort of scroll up and down. You just sort of stroke the top of the, the mouse and it does the same thing, right? And it, I think if you do left and right gestures, you can do things. Jaime, is that not correct? Yeah, I, I'd have to sit and really think about them because I just, just sort of do them naturally, right? So I'm using, you know, one finger to go backwards and forwards in documents, scroll up and down. I'm yeah. uh, double tapping with two fingers, I think, to bring up uh, expose. I'm using two fingers, I think, or three fingers to go backwards and forwards between different desktop spaces that I have. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and now that, you know, I, as an aside, I think a big reason people don't like the mouse and why the magic mouse and why it's perfect for me is I think a lot of folks palm their mouse, oh, right? right? Yeah. Like their, their palm is resting on the mouse. And this Poor mouse man. is not very ergonomic for that. Like it's no. very sleek and flat. It looks like it's supposed to be aerodynamic if you think about it. And for me, I hold my mouse like a, like I'm clawing it, like I'm a raven and clawing a yes. mouse. And yeah. so I don't move my wrists to move the mouse for, for minor movements. I'm using just my fingers and moving the claw around, if that right. makes yeah. sense. Yep. So, you know, different strokes for different folks. It's cool, good you know, things got, about the trackpad. I've got a Mobi E uh, battery in my mouse, right? And, and I don't use it very often, but I discovered that the Mobi E is actually a key charger because I actually use it to charge my phone during the day. When I'm sitting at the desk, I just leave my phone sitting on top of it. It doesn't charge very quickly, but at least it keeps a, it keeps me from running out of juice all day if I'm on the phone all day kind of thing. Just a little side mm-hmm. note, but I, mm-hmm. I just plugged my, I just turned my mouse on so I can I can try it out and see what the gestures do on the iPad because they are paired. Anyway, that's cool. Yeah, I, I'm I'm same with you, Mark. I use the Magic Track Part 2, Trackpad 2, which is the same size glass um, swipey thing that we have on our, our MacBook Pros, right? Yep. Yeah. So I'm scrolling right now with it. Yeah. So I'm so I'm so surprised you didn't recognize Dougal, Douglas Engelbart, Jaime. <laughs> Before my time, yeah. So I think when he's doing, he's doing voice control to move the mouse, right? Because I think so the, I, the demo is I don't doesn't have any sound in the image, but it looks like a very old fashioned dragon naturally speaking demo from IBM. Yeah, and I think he, I, if I'm not mistaken, we can fact check this for next week. I think he was the second guy on the internet, right? Like the first guy who invented the. I think he went on to, to form Recom, but the first guy who had like the first IP address, Douglas Enkelbart, was the guy he connected to it at Xerox Park, right? So he technically. Had the second uh, second address. He, he did a number of things for computing, like invent the mouse is probably the, the one people remember the most. But I do I think he was involved in early Ethernet as well. So what, do you, what do you remember about him, Mark? Looking up first IP address ever. See see if we can. Yes, to sort of double. Yes, to yeah. And some of my me. my memory, whatever it may be, is questionable because I'm also a fan of the Halt and Catch Fire show and yeah. spoilers for later later seasons yeah. when yeah. they start talking about some of these topics. And I don't know what was real and what was made up based on historical events. Yeah, yeah. That's an, it's an interesting re-sort of, uh, they call it fic, uh, fic lit, where it's uh, fictional literature or, or something like that. It was based on actual facts and things. Loosely based on actual facts, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There are some, I mean, they do talk about the Mac and Windows and stuff like that on the show. There's a real cool picture of the, of the original mouse. That, if you go to the Computer History Museum in, is it, where's Menlo Park? Is that where Google is? It's actually on Google campus. Uh, Google, uh, is, Google is in Mountain View. Mountain View. So, uh, Mount, Facebook yeah, and Menlo Park. And yeah, the computer so, museum is not actually on Google's campus. It's right next door. It's it's right. Uh, you know right butted up next to it, but yeah. it is not actually on the campus. So if you're ever going to Google for an interview, make sure you go visit the Google or the Computer History Museum. But they have they have the original mouse that uh, Douglas had. He made it out of wood with a button on top. And then uh, they also have a, a Xerox Park and a bunch of old Macs and stuff like that there too. Um, so so yeah. uh, ARPANET, which was the precursor to right. the internet, yeah. this is why I was looking it up because something didn't sound right. 
was not at Xerox. It was it had four nodes, uh, one at UCLA, one at Stanford Research Institute in Palo Alto, one at UC Santa Barbara, yeah. one of my alma maters, actually, and one at the University of Utah School of Computing. I think what I'm talking about is the history of Ethernet, not necessarily... So Ethernet was after OpenNet. Was it? Okay. Yeah. Oh, he's no longer with us. I think he just passed away a few years ago, actually. Yeah, he was one of the one of those people over at Xerox Park that did all that, you know, early inventing inventing of computer mm-hmm. stuff. Okay, yeah. Ethernet was Bob Metcalf at Xerox Palo Alto, Xerox Park. At Xerox Park, yeah. So yeah. By who? So Bob Metcalf, famous guy. Metcalf, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And let's see. It's certainly possible that his first connection was to a colleague down the street or mm-hmm. down the, down the, the uh, hallway. In the office, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's in the, um, it's a, my fact is coming from that um, Accidental Empires book by um, Robert Crinchley. Crinchley? I don't know. Well, the Accidental Empires or how the boys of Silicon Valley made their millions but still can't get a date. <laughs> yeah, anyway, back when, back when nerds were nerds, now, mm-hmm. now, now everybody's a nerd, right? So. Now it's a, now it's cool to be a nerd. Yeah. All right. Well, so here's another story here. Um, I was reading this one. I don't know if it's true. I'll have to find out when I get it. But apparently uh, the new MacBooks or MacBook Pros, um, according to this article here, charge better on the right side of USB ports than on the left. And there was a, it's something to do with... Um, to do, 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 do something to do with the well it's all about heat right it's right yeah it's uh when you when you charge it on the left side it's mm-hmm. i guess it's closer to the fan so mm-hmm. or the sensor that turns on the fan right uh so um it turns oh wait a second no it's not the fan let's see the machine would slow down on the fan oh no no okay it's closer to the cpu apparently because right. it, it heats it up and of course you know what one of the, the things that dynamics. ios does to protect itself is if you ever looked at your activity monitor when things are going crazy and slow on yeah. your mac you see yeah. this thing called the kernel task running all the time all right okay yeah well what that actually is is it's a defense mechanism that ios does when things start heating up it starts running these other processes hmm. which are fake processes in order to prevent your tasks from running and and heating up the, oh really the it's more. like a, like yeah. a guard on the cpu yeah it is it totally is mac os yeah. not your mac os not ios right right said, oh, right so this is mac os did i say iOS? it probably, it probably does the same thing on on the phone too but. maybe so yeah yeah oh, yeah interesting. so so if you according to this uh and you know no reason to disbelieve it uh when you charge from the left side it heats things up more so you start mm. running kernel tasks more and your max right. down. Hmm. I have, to, I have to take that under advisement because I know I've heard people complain about their Macs and wanting to kill processes and stuff like that. And I wonder if they wonder what this one is. But hmm. yeah, Don't I was it. bummed when I when I read this and saw this mm-hmm. in the show notes because yeah. I am a put my Mac on the right hand side. I like having the auxiliary display on that right hand side, and I'm like, oh, good. That means that my MacBook Pro is being charged from the left side, which is noted here. And I can't think of a, a bigger peripheral than my monitor, which is connected to uh, the MacBook Pro. Um, yeah. I'm I'm not sure what, what ends up happening as it drives stuff. Maybe it's different if it's not spitting out power, like to some other you know USB drive or something. I've not noticed any ill effects so far. Uh, I haven't seen any anything happen. Um, well, I'm I think a lot, a lot will depend on the environment. If if it's you know if your if your Mac is sitting on a place where it has good ventilation and and 
and it can uh-huh. heat sink itself. You know, it can it can it can dissipate the heat. Then it's probably not an issue. You know, if you've got your Mac sitting in some confined space where there's not a lot of airflow, uh, uh-huh. and then there's nowhere for the heat to go, then yeah, things are going to heat up. And if you start, you know, running some serious programs while you're trying to charge, then yeah, you're probably going to run into these issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they are saying charge on the right hand side is better than left, Jaime. Right? Yeah, which is the opposite of how I have it. And and this yeah. Yeah. article has me like scared enough. I'm like, mm, should I switch <laughs> and change my whole yeah. desk? My, like my whole desk is built around this this concept. And uh, what will and probably like, well, fix it is if you get a little fan and run it on top of your, your Mac. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. Well, you know, Just you were talking about the you know like the heat sink idea. I'm like, hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I happen to use one of those. I think it's Rain Design uh, metal risers. That's it's like a sheet of aluminum, a formed mm-hmm. aluminum that puts the Mac. Uh, MacBook Pro at like just the angle I like. I'm like, oh, that probably gives enough ventilation, and the metal is a heat sink for yeah. dissipating heat away from the MacBook Pro. So maybe that's why I have not seen this behavior. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Well, it's also too that like I'm looking at my old um, my MacBook Air right now, the 2013, and the MagSafe is on the left hand side. So we probably all gotten used to plugging things on the left hand side, you know, for power and that kind of stuff, right? That's probably where the habit comes from. Interesting. I always I always plug my USB C. Mac in on the right for some reason, but but my old Mac with the MagSafe, it's always plugged in on the left. Yeah, well, that's because there's only one MagSafe. That's, port, that's right? the only way to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's an interesting thing. Just keep an eye on that. I'll, I'm gonna have to check out this this kernel testing. That's kind of mm-hmm. that's that's. I learned something today. How about that? Yeah, that's great. Yeah, like you, I know Spin Dump is the, is the spinner that comes up when uh, when the it's doing swapping and it's kind of busy, right? So everybody calls it the beach ball or spinning spinning wheel of death or whatever. Mm-hmm. Proper name is Spin Dump. Uh, all right. Um, now, I forgot. Oh, uh, yeah, we were talking about last. This is sort of a follow-up uh, fact-checky kind of thing. Um, I actually have a copy of Speed Doubler here in, in Minton Box. I'm looking at it right now. I didn't realize at the time, but it was one of the things we added to our old 68K Max uh, to make it faster and c- from Kinetics. And they're the same people who made uh, made um Disk doubler, which was a, a on-the-fly compression uh, thing that we used to use to, to save disk space back when we had really small drives. But um, this, we were talking about last week about the the PowerPC 68K emulator suffered on the new PowerPCs because um, you know it kind of slowed slowed down the process. Well, Speed Doubler was one of these uh, tools that came along and made the uh, the legacy 68K apps run faster on the new PowerPCs. This is back in the day. But yeah, just Kinetics uh, made Speed Doubler. Kinetics also. I don't know if you guys remember this, but apparently the same guy who wrote Speed Doubler also wrote the, um, there was a PlayStation um, VGS, I think it was called Virtual Game System. And it would, you could play um, PlayStation games on your Mac back in the, back in the early days before time. Yeah. Same same dude, same engineer who wrote the Speed Doubler did that as well. Anywho. um, Yeah. And I don't know if you, have you guys heard about the AirPods Studio? Yeah. I've been hearing about that. Yeah. So this came up uh, over the year headphone. Yeah. For those of you who can't use the uh, current AirPods, um, or prefer over over the ears. Um, I, I do when I'm doing audio. I like to mixing and stuff. I've got air. I got them on right now over the ears. But yeah, these ones are going to come out for like three forty nine. Is is three forty nine seems to be the magic number, eh, Jaime? That's um, that's the bad number that we identified for bad number. The uh, oh. the iPod Hi Fi and the HomePod pricing. Right. Um, right. So, it but you know, maybe, well for this, who, I guess. who knows? Maybe you know, maybe that's just the the price you pay. No pun intended for yeah. audio. 
based peripherals. Yeah, yeah. So John Proser again has brought up this this rumor uh, about the AirPods Studio. Uh, he likes the he, say, he says that Apple's sticking to the AirPods name in their branding. So um, I don't know where he found this uh, this link here, but yeah, no more fun, no more fun because these guys keep spilling all the uh, the beans before they hit the street, right? It certainly makes the events um, less of a of, of a surprise, yeah. less sort of awe of like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this. Oh yeah, we heard about that the night before. You know, it's yeah, it's rough. It's rough. Well, it's for only for the, only for two thirds of us who, who are on Twitter, right? Because the other third is not doesn't care and finds out in the old fashioned way. Yep. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So yeah, we'll have to see what happens with that. I guess you know something you, you guys might be in the market for because you're both non AirPod users, right, or earbud users, right? Yeah, I do use over the ear earphones, but not so much for listening to music, to be honest. Uh, except you know, except when I'm at the office, I have some ear uh, noise canceling ones. I have some Bose noise canceling ones. So I, I don't know. I can't tell from this article whether these are noise canceling or not. I would think well, I would they think would they be. Com- compete with the AirPods, the current AirPods. What do they call AirPods Pro? The new ones? Well, are they really meant to compete with those with the Air with the AirPod? The real well, AirPods? I mean, mm, yeah, sure. I think, like I said, I think there's a large number, large population of people who can't use that style of uh, of uh, headphone, right? So, yeah, you know, been around for a while, but a lot of people can't use it. So maybe over the years or, you know, and the kids like them, right? So, <laughs> it's a fashion statement. You get to wear them around your neck and stuff when you're chilling. Mm. Anyway, Jaime would tell us all about that, I'm sure. For, for me, so for me, <laughs> and I'm very cognizant that this is a very much unique situation. Um, but as I've mentioned on the show before, I've been hesitant to buy the AirPods and I'm more interested and therefore less hesitant to try out the AirPods. AirPods Pro, since they do have um, various sized sort of tips that you could put on there that might help Mm. solve the problem that I have of, you know, my ear canals are just not shaped appropriately to go without pain after prolonged use of the ear pods, which are very similarly shaped. So this AirPods, what did you say, studio, um, the -the over-the-ear headphones, it sounds like, oh, Lopez, that's solving your problem. Like, but did you forget that I also have a spiky hairdo? And think about where that band would go. I do have yeah but you wear you can wear it backward like the cool kids do right yeah it doesn't stay like nobody ever designs for that case to be you know stay put on your head the way that, like top on you gotta get moving to the top on you know <laughs> so I, I do have behind the head um over the ear headphones that i use when i go outside and you know walk the dog that sort of thing listen to podcasts like this very show um and and they're actually designed for that right they have a little over the ear piece that you know keeps gravity from doing what it does right and ripping them off my, my ears and it's behind the back is where it's, they're connected so I don't have to worry about my, my lovely hair. And So does it ever snow in Seattle? Not too frequently. Oh, I was going to say, what do you do when it snows? You wear a hat? I, I don't live in Toronto. That's what I do. <laughs> so it's not, it's not that big of an issue. <laughs> I guess. All right. Yeah, I, I don't wear hats too often. I tend to wear visors in the summer if people are interested. Mm. So, yeah. yeah. But that's, that's kind of a very roundabout point here. I'm like, oh, I'm kind of kind of stuck because they probably didn't design it for my particular use case, and that's not anybody's fault. It's just a consequence of my hairstyle. And you know, we were chatting today about the in a pandemic mm-hmm. world and less frequent access to, or no access in my case, to haircuts. I'm like, oh, my spikes are 
getting pretty big. <laughs> Last time it was four inches. Now they're 4.25 inches. The structural integrity of my, my hair gel is, is getting tested mm-hmm. through the next getting coming tested, months. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Have to work on your engineering and architectural uh, studies. All right. Over to you, Hame, for some Facebook-y kind of nonsense. Did you skip one? I'm did confused. I? Oh, yes, yeah, I, so I did skip one. Yeah, back to you okay. again with the exciting, exciting adventures of the UI button. The exciting conclusion, yeah. So this is in that series that uh, I'd mentioned the very first one from Jeff Watkins about Nobody Loves UI Button. If you didn't catch it in the previous shows, uh, there was, you know, some, you know, hey, here's stuff you could do to make use of UI Button and what it gives you out of the box. And importantly, not lose the accessibility features that you get out of the box for UI Button. Uh, but, you know, as the series goes on, sort of recognizes that, oh, um, there are some downsides to UI Button and there's a reason why it's very tempting for people to say, hey, let's just throw a tap gesture recognizer on this random arbitrary view and call it good, missing out on the accessibility features, which is unfortunate. This one on building an adaptive button, this one talks about like, all right, so imagine you wanted to have what seems very simple and straightforward, a button where you have text on one side and an image asset on the other side, you know, left or right, up or down, you know, configurable and deal with things like um, adaptive text sizes. And I, it's a good read. It's, it's it's a pretty light, straightforward read, but I'll lead you way down to the bottom where it's like, oh yeah, it actually turns out that if you want to deal with auto layout and other things in a sane way, you actually kind of want to avoid what UI button does um, because it's very jealous about how it guards its image label and um, icon or image view, whatever they're called. And in this example, Jeff goes the opposite route, or I should say a very different route of saying, oh, well, you can still subclass UI control, which is something that UI button conforms to. So it felt like this whole series sort of took me on this long journey towards, yeah, we kind of don't love UI button because it has very serious problems. You should probably be doing UI control to get a lot of the accessibility aspects, but yet actually have more ability to customize what this looks like and feels like. Granted, if UI button does what you want to do, nothing wrong with that. But I can certainly see why when people want to go custom and they don't want to lose the ability to have uh, accessibility features, seems like UI control is sort of the, the way to go. This is this is in the same way that great artists, Tim, you can talk more about this, uh, need to learn all the rules first before you learn how to break the rules. Or like jazz right, musicians, yeah. you yeah. need to be an expert musician and you need to be an expert at the, the formal ways of doing things in, in music in order to know how to break the rules and still do it right, well, whatever right means. Same kind of thing there. If if you if you know UI button, you know its limitations. Then you know when you can live within the limitations of UI button, and then when you can't live within those, that's when you go outside. You don't just go and right. just do it for the sake of doing it. So yeah, I get his point. Yeah, you're right. Picasso wasn't couldn't be Picasso unless he knew how to use a brush. Exactly. All the ways to use a brush. That is cool. Mm-hmm. All right. Poor poor Jeff is going to be known as the UI button guy from now on for the rest of his life. Yeah. <laughs> whenever we're uh, whenever we're talking about buttons, we'll we'll drag him out. So hopefully he hasn't. Hopefully he hasn't got another career in mind. All right. Now can we talk about Facebook? Yeah. And what what the Facebook? <laughs> so by the time you listen to this episode, this uh, this event is 
far in the rearview mirror, but I thought it was worth bringing up because it it brings together a lot of different sort of points we've made on this show. Um, yeah, what is it that Mark one. hates most? I think what third party libraries. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and and I feel like there were some unfair hot takes on this situation that I, I want to address more fairly, not in defense, but more in teasing apart where truth actually lies and, and guidance for, for you listeners at home. But what I'm talking about is the um, the crashing bug that the Facebook SDK had for every iOS app that included it. Um, and note it, I said included the SDK, not even necessarily used oh, it. Oh, really? You know, like oh. in a, you know, some folks might have had Facebook installed um, as part of their, their libraries merely so they could do the analytics tracking for things like, oh, we did a Facebook app install ad and we, we kind of want to see, are we getting value from that? And can we track the ad spend to actual realized users signed up, downloaded and installed and you know, signed up? And it turns out that, and we'll definitely talk about this, it gets even nuttier that if you merely linked the Facebook SDK to your project and didn't actually call it, as some people tried to do to fix this problem, like, oh, what if I just don't initialize it? Like, nope, this problem still impacted you as well. Um, and it turned out that somewhere um, in the, the, the sort of guts of how the Facebook SDK initializes itself, there was a programmer error, a very common programmer error. It's happened to everybody. If you're listening to this show, I guarantee you have had this bug happen to you. You forget to do a nil check before you try accessing an object in, I think this is a, a dictionary, right? Right. And something changed where you know, normally the life cycle is the SDK is loaded up, not necessarily fired up as part of, um, you know, you actually calling and instantiating, which we'll get to. Like when your app starts up, the SDK's life cycle has already begun. And apparently it uh, phones home to grab some sort of configuration from Facebook servers. And I'm sure 99.99999999% of the time, this has gone without fail, except for about a week ago when this happened, where something changed in the server response, where a key that's supposed to be there and is expected was not there. And the SDK without the nil check promptly blew up. And since this is super early, like I said, your your app has begun. This thing has begun as well. All the apps were crashing. You're talking about your uh, your offer ups, your Spotify's, your um, Uber. I want to say there was a ton of apps. Uh, this one says what Spotify, Venmo, TikTok, and other apps were crashing. And people tried to fix it like, oh, well, who knows what's going on with the SDK? Let's just remove the SDK for a patch release. And people realize, wait a minute, it's still crashing. What is happening? Well, what was happening is that uh, the SDK was using an interesting trick where it was using the class loading mechanism uh, inherent to the Objective-C runtime. And, and to be clear, this this would have happened even if they written it in Swift too, right? Mm -hmm. So it was saying, oh, when the linker does its job and your app begins to you get pulled in, you know, all its dependencies and everything to, to actually run, this little bit of code runs at the, it's the, the class, um, it's like plus load, you know, if you can visualize that, right? So it's a, it's a static class level method called load. They had overridden that. We're doing this particular phoning home, grabbing bits of information they needed for configuration or et cetera, had the error and things were dying. So as your app was getting sort of put together to come to life, it 
it was just full on crashing right there, right? So apparently they had done this technique to get as early into the application loading lifecycle as possible. As far as I know, you can't get any any closer to time zero for this. All right, so that's 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 what happened, right? They they eventually patched it uh, on the server side, you know, even without additional SDK changes, um, which I'm, I've not followed up on. I don't know. Presumably, hopefully, they've gone and, and changed the code on the SDK so it you know guards against that situation. Um, but they fixed it so that nobody had to release new apps in order to, mm. to resolve this problem. But for I don't know how many hours it was, everybody who had that SDK included, not even necessarily used, but just hope you didn't link it and decide not to use it. You were crashing, right? right. No, I bring out to the panel some things like I, I knew the, you know, we've talked about in the show, third party libraries, there's a price to the magic, right? There's a cost. We want to put it that way that uh, you shouldn't throw in third party stuff willy nilly. You should be very mindful, very careful about considering that. I'm sure, Mark, you, you definitely would agree with that point. I think. strongly agree with that one. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think the, the hot take part of it that I'd, I'd seen some, uh, some more popular folks on interwebs, I'm not going to call them out specifically just sort of indirectly here they're like oh we'll see well, was that worth it you know obviously the implication being it wasn't worth it included i'm like well hold on i'm not saying you should you know just throw it in an app just because but i've come from an environment I'm like oh it was absolutely 100 worth it even if yeah. your app was crashing for you know four to five hours i'm sure that was a miserable time for the engineers that were dealing with that i would not have wanted to deal with that but if i look at it objectively i'm like yeah the reduction in friction for stuff like facebook login reduction in friction for figuring out your facebook um ad spend and how effective it is is immensely worth it if that fits your use case right and i'm very very clear here if it fits your use case for something where it wasn't you know that important to your your strategy probably wouldn't be worth it but i do believe it is unfair to say aha see it wasn't worth it or to say oh no there were third party libraries ever because i don't i don't know that it's quite as black and white as as some folks have put it again i'm not not defending and i think some of the stuff that i described of what it was doing was bananas it was nutty <laughs> to try to to go in there and and uh, load something from a remote server while the the class loader is doing its job like that's just i don't know i, I can't imagine doing that yeah no, it definitely has this place i mean i know of some apps that, that uh, i've worked on in the past that used it for for the marketing side of things like the you know to, to sell ads through facebook like sell i mean downloads like getting the Facebook using the social network to to get attention to the app and and then track what's you know being used or whether that was successful or not and that required us putting the Facebook library into the app right so it's too bad I didn't know about it at the time because I should have tried our apps to see if they were they were in fact crashing too but uh, probably were I guess right at um, least for me every app that I could remember that I used Facebook to log in was oh, yeah? crashing mm. at the time and well we weren't using login we were using the the marketing piece that you talked about right uh, yeah and, and and that would be harder for me to tell right? Like yeah. as a user, that's invisible. So for me, I was just checking the ones that, oh, I know that I signed up for these using Facebook, right, right, you know, right. oh, yeah. okay. long ago. And uh, I have seen some other folks bring the, oh, well, you know, Facebook has supported this, um, this web-based login method you, you could use if you wanted to do Facebook login without the SDK. I'm like, oh, that's not necessarily as reasonable a choice as you might think, because that might work in 2020 um, <laughs> and 2013 if it even existed, it was definitely not that easy because that involves an OAuth um, exchange. Yeah. And that is getting easier because there's more tools out there that do a lot of this for you. Like um, the fine folks at appauth.io have like really good examples of doing 
OAuth plus the more secure type OAuth for mobile. Mm-hmm. But it's it's really easy to mess it up too. And I don't think it's sort of reasonably be like, oh well, look at you, lazy developer. You didn't want to do this difficult OAuth exchange, and uh, you maybe have made a decision to include you know Facebook's login SDK because it does do that for you, right? That's part of the reason you would use the SDK is it um, res- you know resolves that pain as a developer. Again, in 2020, maybe that's reasonable take to have. Like, look at all these other tools you have. 2011, 2013, that would not have been as reasonable. And it would be very, uh, very reasonable that somebody had made a decision um, in the past, a technical decision, and then not reevaluated it, right? This feels like another lesson of like, make sure you're reevaluating your architectural decisions every once in a while to see, is this still valid um, or have the conditions at which we made that decision no longer valid? Like today, uh, I talked about, oh, but there's also, you know, sign in with Apple, which to me, I feel like beyond the requirement that you do so, if you're offering something like Facebook or Google login, I think as a user is swell. You should use it. It's nice. It's based on OAuth OpenID Connect. So it's not super different in principle, but it also uh, is presumably less likely to have sort of nutty things done for weird ulterior reasons. That's my soapbox. I didn't <laughs> honestly didn't know how long we ended up spending on this, but I wanted to make sure to, to, to get the MTJC sort of opinion out there on this because it's it's pretty easy to sort of be one-sided or the other and i don't i don't know that we uh we rah 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 or poo 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 things i think we're we're pretty fair here on this show yeah oh you like to hate facebook yes (laughs) (laughs) you just Yeah, unfortunately, I'm I'm attached to Facebook because of my family obligations. But there you go. All righty. Uh, so, what's happening in the world of Swift, Jaime? Yeah, I've got a link here for the uh, Swift.org release process for Swift 5.3. Um, it's you know nothing wrong with it. It's interesting enough if you're into that kind of thing. What caught my attention was uh, a major goal for Swift 5.3 is adding official support for Windows hmm. and additional Linux distributions. Don't want to leave that in the cold. But I thought, oh, um, I mean, I'm not going to take you know advantage of this. I'm not a Windows user, but I really do like and appreciate the fact that sort of finally we're seeing the opportunity for Swift to expand even further into the developer uh, community. I think this is um, it's, it's it's a good thing. I don't know. It's hard to qualify it as anything other than, than purely good. I can't think where of good reasons say, not to make it available on Windows. Where on this page that you've got linked here does it say it's available on Windows? Uh, the motivation and goals. It's a weird one-off oh, side okay. comment. Um, huh. Expand the number of platforms where Swift is available and supported. Notably, adding support for Windows and additional Linux distributions. But it doesn't even doesn't even reach the headline. And that's why you listen to the shows. We, we catch details like this. I was going to say Windows is you know arguably the, the widest distributed operating system for you know computers in the world, right? Um, desktop computers, that is, right? So mm-hmm. it's big in and, the enterprise, you know. So I, I could see you know if we develop things using Swift, like we've already got it on Linux, right? So to add it to Windows, you know, might, in the same way that the iPod sort of took off once, you know, um, Apple made iTunes available on Windows, um, that certainly helped the iPod initial sales, right? And we wouldn't be here having the show today if it wasn't for, you know, um, Apple's decision to open up the the audience for the iPod and iTunes and, uh, you know, which then led to the iPhone, of course, and that's why we're here, right? So can't complain. Yeah, and I like the democratization 
optimization that it gives for Swift, right? That yeah. you're going even further outside of the field. Well, it's already an old language. Apple. It's been around for five years already, right? So it's almost half over. <laughs> it's not <laughs> It's not half over in its life cycle. It's it's yeah. definitely halfway through its sort of hype cycle. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah. Uh, but I think, you know, this is a little bit of a tangent, but, but give me 30 seconds here, right? So right. when I go to Apple-based events and when I go to other ecosystem-based events, it could be Android, it could be um, uh, JavaScript or web-based sort of meetups, API-based meetups. I could sort of tell a distinct difference in the crowds, but the, the Apple crowds sort of sit apart and in, in not even necessarily always in a good way. And what I have noticed is there's kind of a baseline level of money that you need to have available to play in this game, right? Like the Macs are not cheap. iPhones, you know, SE, even at a, at a much, much lower price of $399 is still not cheap. And, and yes, you can have uh, used or hand-me-down gear. You don't have to have latest and greatest. So that's all well and true. Nothing beats the actual sort of rapid reduction of price. Like a cheapo, I'm sure disgusting to those of us, you know, on this show and listening, uh, very El Cheapo Windows machine. That's honestly what, a, you know, a fair number of people starting their development career, especially students, might have available, right? This is the, the PC that this I have. This is an autobiography by any chance? Yeah, where are we going with this? No, <laughs> I, I, I grew up sort of fairly privileged in that respect, but I am still cognizant of the fact that, you know, why why does JavaScript, you know, every year we always take a, like to take a look on this show of like, you know, what are the most popular languages? And by far, every year, year after year after year, it's always JavaScript. And it's not even necessarily, to my mind, um, just based on the merits of JavaScript itself. I would say, let's say, well, because every darn machine, you know, on the earth has JavaScript, most likely, right? If you have a browser and the most basic text editor, and, and sometimes not even that, because there's a lot of web-based tools that you can use, you can build JavaScript-based apps. You can't very easily or very well do that today with Swift, right? You Oh, soon you'll be able to once Swift 5.3 ships. And that's my point, right? Like, yeah, you could like go the very there be dragons route of Linux if you wanted to go a, a cheaper than Mac route, um, but it's very clearly first class support was was in you know Apple uh, devices, and so I like the fact that this broadens the community. I'm hoping that we will see you know more uh, cool things come out of unexpected places as we get sort of new blood, hopefully into the ecosystem. I don't see any downsides to that. Though. Em- embrace your Windows buddies. That's true. Yeah, even though they're wrong because the total cost of ownership of a Mac is much lower than Windows, but that's you know beside the point. All right, well, that's good news. Good, good, good for Swift. Good for Apple. Good for everybody. All right. Um, yeah. So I just have a quick thing here. I, was, I this I posted this link here to the developer uh, support app app store page. Not so much because of the awesome content that's there. I mean, it's it's okay. Uh, but primarily because somebody pointed out today that the uh, install base of um, iOS 13 on the various devices. So if you look on the sidebar on this page, um, you look at 77% of devices introduced in the last four years on iPhones are running iOS 13 and 79% of all devices introduced in the last four years are running iPad OS. This is for the iPads, of course. Um, but it's interesting that, that you know, only 57% of all devices use iPad OS in total. So it's every single, I mean, iPads have been around 10 years now, right, or more. Um, so interesting to see that that uh, that it's still quite low for iPad, where it's, it's quite different on the on the iPhone, because the iPhones tend to be 70% or are using... Uh, 
Yeah. Well, we've known for a while now that the lifetime of an iPad is much longer than an iPhone. Yeah. So people, right. yep. people definitely have iPads that can't be updated. I know my dad, for example, still has an, I think it's an iPad 4 or something like that. And it, it goes up to, I think, iOS 9, you know, and it won't go any further. So he just hasn't upgraded in years and he still uses it. He doesn't need anything better. Your old guy, you know, he doesn't need anything more. Uh, so yeah, so he's in that crowd. He'll use it until it stops working. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, and it's, it's funny because some things still do work. I mean, like, like I'm still, I still have a iPhone 3GS that I use uh, almost frequently, almost daily, not quite daily, but uh, it, it, some things are no longer working on it. Um, But yeah, I mean, I can still get the weather and I can still, you know, look at a few few older social apps, right? Yeah. Or, you know, check email and, uh, and browse the web. And I know one of the, one of the ladies that has one of my very first iPads is still using the iPad. She's running an iPad one, if you believe it. Yeah. And it's, I think it's running iOS six on it, right? Hmm. Um, yeah, she's still using it. So, yeah, interesting stuff. But it's, it's just interesting to see that you know we always talk about the adoption rates of of the latest iOSs, and and uh, interesting that it's like still it's it's at seventy seven percent. I think we wasn't that other what's that other site we look at all the time? The um, mix panel, I mean, the mix panel. Yeah, they yeah. what's what are they, what are they saying these days? I don't know. I haven't checked in a while. But now. mix panel is like another tool where you you put in your uh, oh god, I don't know how to it's an it. analytics telemetry tool iOS 13 adoption. They have iOS 13 at 74.9% as of, oh, this is as of December 16th, 2019. <laughs> so they're a little bit out of date. I guess they've been perhaps, uh, oh, no, no, there's, let's see, past 96 hours. What do they say? Okay. 89.3% iOS 13 hmm. on May 89, 13th. Yeah. 89.3. 8.75% iOS 12 and 1.95% older. Now it's not clear because they don't spell it out um, whether this actually includes iPad OS because it just says iOS 13. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. But I, I kind of suspect it does because they've never yeah. really split it out before. Right. right. Okay. Mm-hmm. So back to you, honey. This one just came out today, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. um, you know, we've got new game devices coming out more. Um, video game consoles coming out. The PlayStation 5 and the Xbox Series X or 10. I honestly don't know how they pronounce that. It looks like an X. Um, are coming out. And so game development companies have been pushing their, their games and pushing their tools. In this case, the folks that are creating the Unreal Engine, the next one is Unreal Engine 5, uh, coming for iOS and Mac in 2021. And of course, this is the same engine that they will offer for folks to build the, the next generation of console games. And uh, it's looking pretty sweet. I mean, these are tech demos. Of course, you always kind of have to, to look at it through that lens. And tech demos don't necessarily translate to the gameplay graphics, but it's it's pretty exciting to see stuff this early uh, as a sneak peek preview of what the next level of gaming is going to mean, especially because it, this statement that I made about iOS and Mac coming as well means that we're not going to be left out in the cold, right? You don't have to go buy right. a shiny new console. You're going to continue to see ever greater and better graphics on your iPhone and, and iPad as we've, um, as you've seen, these these CPUs get and GPUs get really, really freaking good in these mobile devices. Yeah, these uh, images that you got here, sample images of the Unreal Engine 5 um, output. I mean, like, yeah, it says right here, like, the scenes were, like, this well detailed. I mean, this is what looks like a photograph. Um, they weren't possible only during cutscenes in, in early days, right? So, but the fact that they could actually render these on the fly is amazing. Yeah, and I assume the competitive um, game engine products like um, uh, Crytek Unity, yeah. and Unity, yeah. I assume, 
will will have you know to to compete. They'll have to upgrade their stuff. So it's it's all good. So we, with had we had enough warning, we probably would have wisely had Tammy on the show to give her opinions, <laughs> kind of her domain. I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. But short notice, thought I would note it here. Mm. Yeah. Cool. That looks pretty cool. All right. Well, I guess we're now at the picks section of our show. So what do you got for us, Tommy? Yeah. I I don't remember if I actually ever brought up conventional commits or mm. I, that might have been a pick on the show. Or I might have casually mentioned conventional commits as a way to have a standard language and basically tags that you use when you're writing your commit messages for Git or other version control repositories. So it makes it easy for you to sort of visually scan what sorts of activities occurred in your history. Like, oh, that was an update to documentation. This fixed a bug. This added a new feature. And you can actually write scriptable tools that can collect release notes and do other sort of fun things. Continuing in that same vein is something that I just started using because I just learned about it like a week ago is conventional comments. In this mm-hmm. case, using that same sort of having standardized phrasing, standardized tags that you could put in pull request code review comments. Um, and I found this sort of pretty helpful. Um, it, it helps guide the, you know, when I make this statement, am I, am I nitpicking? Am I making a suggestion? Am I asking just a help me understand question? Or am I, you know, doing something nice, like specifically praising somebody? I've, I've found this pretty useful so far in my um, non-scientific usage. So the idea is you put these um, phrases or like praise, nitpick, suggestion, issue, question, thought, chore in front of your comment and bold it, if you will. And then that way, the person who's receiving the, the comment gets an understanding of what, why you're asking this question or what your, what your comment about their PR is, right? Yeah. So it, it adds more intent, right? Because it's right, yeah. even as best as I try, it can be rather difficult to get the full flavor across, um, especially you know when you're trying to avoid being mean right. and you're just legitimately asking a, I don't understand what's going on here question. It's hard to ensure that that's not going to be read as some sort of like offensive slight by the other side, right? Because you lose yeah. nuance and flavor in text. Um, and I'll compare this to something that uh, that I had done. So at a, at a previous employer, uh, the iOS team had this sort of quirky but useful mechanism doing something kind of similar to this. Um, and, and I think I might want to merge the two in some way. And I'm thinking about this in my head. So what that team would do is is it, it had, Mark, you'll love this. They had uh, a series of emoji that would be used to do what's basically this. So mm. if I saw something on there like, hey, we should consider making future upgrades, I'd throw a magic eight ball in front of it and then say, we should consider this for future upgrades. If I was just sort of nitpicking of like, ah, this is kind of a weird style thing, we'd throw the the like um, high heel shoe emoji in front of it. <laughs> and so the, the problem was nobody ever understood when they first joined the team, like, what the heck is going on here? What's, what's this eight ball? What's this high heel shoe? And I, I can't remember what the other ones were, right? right? right. And it, so it had a, a, a documentation problem. Uh, mm. But I do think that the valid point of sort of trying to standardize on it, which is, is better here in conventional commits, you have actual words that make it more clear. I think I might like to embellish these with uh, adornments, emoji adornments, to make it a little bit more fun and less sort of roughly mechanical. Yeah, I mean that's one of my biggest problems with with uh, peer reviews and comments made on code is is we've talked about this before. It's sort of you know as the person making the comment or the person receiving the comment, you know how you interpret it. Um, it's kind of up to you, but uh, it can the, the the intent of the comment can be misconstrued. You know, are you being critical or are you just being suggestive or are you just trying to mansplain your way through a PR? You know, whatever the reason.
reason is for making a comment. Um, I think this, you know, making it a bit more clear in terms of what the idea is, like, you know, like it's like here, it's a the person's put non-blocking in their comment. So like, yeah, you know, maybe fix this in the next PR or something like that, right? Kind of thing, right? Um, or here's an issue or, or something to be aware of, you know, that kind of thing. You can put these comments in PRs and communicate your intent much better. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely cognizant of the fact that it, it can be overwhelming when you come in and leave like 15 to 20 comments on a pull request. Like, it sort of feels like I'm dumping on top of the other person and I'm, I'm not, right? I just want stuff to be to be better. And I think you pointed out something useful, which is not trying to hold uh, code reviews hostage. You're like right. this one yeah. nitpicky change of like, mm, I, I would have used a different word here. Like unless it completely breaks uh, the intent or you know that you will never ever be able to come back. I've leaned towards a non-blocking feedback. Let's let's go ahead and merge this pull request just to make sure the function is out there and can be tested. But let's talk about ways we could do this better in a fast follow-up pull request to refine that. I've never liked pull requests that just live for days and days and sometimes weeks of like, oh my gosh, when is this going to get merged? It's just a never-ending scope creep of additional stuff that this pull request is taking on. At some point, it's better to just you know merge it and follow up and deal with it later. Well, especially now that we're all going to be working from home and we're not going to be face-to-face, we're not going to be able to go to the guy's desk and say, what did you mean by that kind of thing, you know? Um, it's more important to, to, to be aware of what's going, what's actually intended, right? Yeah, because I've I seen merge or sort of peer, peer reviews go back and forth, you know, in terms of, well, this is how we're doing it over here now and you should, you should follow our advice. And, and you know, like you said, they you're holding that PR hostage. You're also holding the developer hostage because he doesn't know, doesn't quite often understand what, what it is you're asking him to do, to be honest with you, right? So it can be tricky. So this is an interesting way to do it. We've, we've taken to, we have a couple of um, guys at our company who are very descriptive in their, when they make a pull request, they have like, you know, an entire, you know, screenshots and, and decorated text to sort of explain what the intent of the PR is, right? So that when you go in there, you've got a, a you know big flowery description as to what is going on before you get into looking at the code, in fact, right? It's say it, but it sounds like they don't have enough to do. Well, they actually, they actually have it, uh, they're using Dash, remember Dash? They use Dash as a as a, a template to sort of do that. And we're on a large team in, in this particular case, right? And so they want to make sure that the, the entire team you know is looking at the PR with, with open eyes, right? So it, it avoids a lot of conflicts too. Um, all right, well, so my pick this week is uh, our friend Guillermo Rambo, who we've used a lot of times in, as a source in our apps. Um, he's uh, just like every, everybody else has podcasts these days, by the way. I don't know if you realize that or not, but uh, he's come up with a little app, which I thought was kind of cool, and it was a couple of bucks to, to buy, and you know, I had some some iTunes credit burning a hole in my wallet. Um, and it's something that I wanted to do. I uh, This is basically a tool that allows you, if you're a podcaster, um, it allows you to very quickly convert your um, audio into a YouTube that you can publish on YouTube. And and uh, I've done that before with, uh, um, I was on a, a podcast with, um, but he uh, he had me on, a, on the thing and he, every episode that he does of his podcast, he also publishes to YouTube. And so he had a script to basically grab, you know, using using uh, um, image magic and a few other things to, to take the take an, uh, an image that you created, like a, um, it's, I have a, one of a spinning, a GIF of a spinning record um, and put that with your, with your, uh, your audio feed and create a, um, you know, basically a, a 16 by nine um, video that you can throw up on on um, on YouTube. This app here very simply um, allows you to just drag in an audio source, drag in an image that you may have made, and publish that to uh, YouTube. If you go to my YouTube channel, let me go there right now. I've published the last ten episodes of uh, More Than Just Code, or not last ten, I guess uh, since 290. Um, 
I've published them up onto my channel. And I've also made a playlist for, you can also add to a playlist as well with it, with them. Um, but I made these with, uh, with uh, this, this app that uh, Mr. Rambo created for us. So if you click on that, you'll see that it goes, takes you over to a YouTube playlist of our last eight episodes. <laughs> yeah, we did one, we only did, ever did one proper video for Spotcast, but I thought we'd put Spotcast up one, ones up there as well and see if we get any, any traction on them. But yeah, it's just another way that people listen to, to um, and get their uh, podcasts out there. So yeah, kind of if you're into podcasting and you're looking for a quick tool to do this, I highly recommend this. It takes, you know, uh, it has a couple of other video effects you can use when you're building it, but it adds a huge time to the rendering. Um, so yeah, these are, these, and you know, like your podcast grows from like, you know, 40 megs to like a gigabyte or two, right? Because <laughs> it becomes a video. So. That's nifty. Um, I, I was going to ask when I saw this on the on the, the picks list, I said, hmm. mm-hmm. does it do what you know, I might sort of expect, which is you choose some sort of image, album art or something, and then it has the audio over. That's cool. There's definitely stuff I've listened to that uh, is that, you know, podcasts that, that went through YouTube conversion to have, um, you know, to have uh, a broader reach and reach sort of a different audience as, an, as another medium. Yeah. Um, something I was curious about is like, oh, uh, I wonder if it does something silly. Like uh, there are apps out there that will take audio and then throw little like cartoon characters on the screen to sort of entertain yourself. And so yeah, yeah. We, we would see us talking out of, you know, cartoon character type things. So it seems like it's not that. Uh, so uh, if you were wondering about seeing us as like donkeys and pigs and chickens or something <laughs> that you'll be sadly disappointed. But, uh, you know, if you had sort of normal expectations, I think it'd be good. Yeah. Yeah. I, like I think, I, I think for one of the earlier episodes of more than just code, I got to find it now. Oh, you know what? There's a more than just code channel that I created years ago. That's probably where it is. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that one. I'm like, there's these other ones. There's a, there's a Greg and Tammy, like one minute video. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's on the more than just code one, right? Yeah. Yeah. I published, I made those a while ago. Uh, Here you go, Tim. I, I know how to YouTube. I've, I've got a better link for you. <laughs> you know how to YouTube? <laughs> I'm going trying to go through the back door here. Oh, I've switched over to that. There you go. So the reason yours came up, and I suspect this is the case, the reason yours came up with episode, uh, was it 294, you said, is yeah. I assume you happen to just be looking at that video. So if you looked at oh, the URL, maybe. it shows, um, you know, V equals, and then some other weird good, and playlist equals. So if you just sort of take, you know, slash playlist and list equals, this is good, I assume, or random string of characters, that takes you to just the list. Yeah. You can see yeah. which ones you want, and you don't have to choose you can you can mash that subscribe button and make sure you hit that little bell so you get notified when new episodes come out on youtube oh really hmm. well, I don't, yeah i have a few subscribers but not very many you have one more than you did just before because i subscribed yay you know i didn't mash the, the bell let me go yeah i might, I might oh. move these other ones over uh so where's this one here this um Oh, this is a preview one. It's only a minute long. Um, where's our note? No notes. Here we go. So, but I warn you, this one's really loud, Mark. But um, mm-hmm. this is a, this is a preview. You can see that I, I created with a little record player GIF. Oh, that's kind of a cool effect. I didn't realize you would have animation. Of that yeah. Sort so this that. is the one that was cre- created with that with that um, script I was talking about, right? But uh, yeah, this was not created with this app because this was done way a year ago or six months ago, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So I did a because we did a promo piece. Yeah, and the, and the one with uh, with uh, Greg and Tammy. That one was an interesting one. I was playing with because uh, the other thing you can do with uh, YouTube is you can actually create um, subtitles for your shows, right? Because Google will do it automatically, and then uh, so that's what I was doing with the Greg and Tammy episode that's there on that that same channel. Um, and then I, what I did was I, I let Google do it, and then I went through and edited them to make them correct because it was not hearing Tammy and Greg correctly, right? And he was talking about the JBM. 
him, as a matter of fact. The Java Virtual Machine, when you say? Yeah. Do you, you see the one called Cutting Room Floor? The one in Java? Or they were, because, yeah, Tammy and um, and uh, Greg were giving me a hard time about how I say Java. <laughs> <laughs> right. How do you say Java? I say Java. What's not wrong Java. with Java. Well, uh, Tammy says it's Java, not Java. I kind of say Java, right? Historically, yes. She says it's Java? Like Java. Like, yeah, the island Java. Yeah. Java? I guess what? like a belly girl would say Java. Java? I don't know. I don't I hear assumed it, it was myself. A, an over- <laughs> Emphasis to, to emphasize the difference what do I between say, Java, Java and Java, Java. That, that Canadians tend to say. And mm-hmm. it's sort of like in Harry Potter when Hermione says it's Leviosa, not Leviosa. Leviosa. Yeah, exactly. She looks like Hermione too. She's got the weird hair and a whole bit, right? So, But if you listen to that that uh, little clip there, uh, Mark, it's only like 30 seconds long. You can hear um, Emmy give me heck for the way I say Java. I'll have a link in the show notes for those who are driving at home. <laughs> anyway, what, what, what I was saying was going with this is that not not only can you do um, close closed captioning in English, you can also do closed captioning in other languages, right? So in theory, we our, our audience could, you know, spread beyond the English listening audience, even though we're talking in English as we speak, right? So the idea would be that you could you could have French translation, and I no idea. Well, I guess I try I could try the French translation, tell you how that looks. But yeah, interesting stuff. It's, it's basically Google's uh, artificial intelligence doing it on the fly. But that's cool too. All right, and I guess that's it for another week. Hey Jaime, so if people want to get in touch with you where would they find you i'm on twitter as at dev with the hair all right and mark if people want to get in touch with you at mark r at smapsoft.com all right you can find me on the twitter machine at tim mitra t-i-m-m-i-t-r-a and that's how you get all of me and so until next time we'll say bye-bye bye bye this has been another episode of the more than just code podcast this is friend of the show mike finockman's If you want to find out more about the show, you can visit the More Than Just Code website at mtjc.fm. There you can find a summary and show notes of each episode. We list links to the apps, code, and news that we mentioned on the show. If you like the podcast, tell your friends. Please leave a comment on the website, and if you can, please write a review on iTunes. And please recommend us in your favorite podcatcher. All of these things help others find out about the show. We really appreciate your help with spreading the word. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you. So use the hashtag AskMTJC. Once again, the podcast Twitter account is at MTJC underscore podcast. Please consider supporting the show by pledging any amount on Patreon.com slash MTJC. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. You want to eat that, do you? I that do. Sounds, sounds yeah. interesting. I don't know. It sounds kind of gross to me, but then I guess I've been on a sort of, you know, conscious diet for well, too many decades. Too many decades. Yeah. I, I'm not going to ever eat it, even if no. it were in front of me. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. I want to eat it. <laughs> There's a really? difference. Sure. Well, yeah. Well, sure. Sure. No, I, I haven't been, a, I haven't, I haven't had a double patty hamburger in I don't know how long. So, yeah. So, well, it depends on what kind of diet you're on, but if, but, uh, if you're doing the low carb thing, uh, it's, it's actually not too unreasonable to have two patties and veggies and just don't eat cheese, don't eat the bun. Oh, the waffles. Don't eat the waffles. The waffles waffles will kill you. The waffles waffles are awful. Yeah. 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 No, they're awesome, but they're, they'll kill you. Oh yeah. And, and the, and the maple syrup too, because I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I know. You can't have any fun. That's, that's no, you can't. Bottom line, no, you can't. No fun for you. There you go. Now I can start my my three D printer. I got a seventeen hour print job to do. Wow. Yeah, I'm printing the Maltese Falcon. Did I tell you that earlier? You did. Yeah. What what size is it? It's let's see, a size that it's actually in the movie. It's in three pieces, right? So there's a head, a body, and a tail, or like feet. Um, I've got the head printed now, and that took six hours. Okay, so like the the size of a bust, roughly, if I remember the movie. Yeah, if you, you ever seen the movie, right? The actual there actually is a malt, there is like a, a sculpture of a bird, right? That, right, but but one that a, a normal adult male could carry around. Yeah, it's not like a like a huge marble statue or something. It's no, no, no. It's yeah, it's the size of a water bottle, I think. You know, like a, maybe a little shorter. <laughs> but I just got my my three D printer up and running again. So what material um, is it? Can we made out PL, of PLA? Is that yeah, it's like plastic? Yeah, it's a. It's I think it's corn-based plastic actually. Hmm, okay. Yeah, so it's, it's heats. It's got an extruder, and uh, basically what you what it does is it takes a three D model and it does what's called slicing, where it, it does it, it basically uh, it prints one layer at a time, and then the, then the head moves up a little bit in the Z mm-hmm. on the Z axis, and then just kind of zooms around. Mm-hmm. And it's got a bunch of servos that move the move uh, left and right up, back and forth, um, and it kind of you know kind of sings as it prints, but the the motors kind of like make a singing noise. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't like to leave it unattended for long periods of time, but I think I've got it to the point where I can actually probably leave it unattended. But uh, I'm going to hook up a because uh, the way I print, you can either print from your Mac, um, which basically ties up your Mac for like however long it's going to take to print, or you can put the image, you can put the the G code it's called onto uh, um, a flash disk, a flash drive, and then sh- shove that in there like a micro SD drive, um, and then and basically writes the code. It's all written in, in text, and you put that in there, and then the the printer uh, interprets it and turns it into into uh, basically extruded plastic. It's cool. It's mesmerizing too. That's the other sad part about it. You just you sit there and watch it for hours. But I made a time lapse of it, of it actually, if you're interested. I would be kind of curious because I, I felt that 3D printers are still kind of at that stage where I remember early CD mm-hmm. burning where like, well, you're just going to get bad coasters every once in a while. Yeah. Right? And then at some point they figured out the magic yeah. to make it, you know, I'm sure buffering technologies and probably other, you know, hardware upgrades that made it so like, oh, like you just don't worry. You never lose one. And I feel like 3D printing, I really would love to see it get to that point because I'm, I wouldn't even say I'm enthusiast. I'm in a very casual interest in 3D printing. And I don't think, I don't think my heart could, could live with like, oh, 16 hours and 45 minutes in, it messed yeah, it up. And you know? <laughs> it breaks. Yeah. 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 I'm not hardcore enough. But I mean, yeah, getting, getting the basin is, is really, uh, really tricky. Um, Whoa, that's really freaky. <laughs> yeah, it's moving. That. So fast. Oh, that's pretty cool, though. So on on the the link I just gave you, it's Riverdale 3D. That's the yep. site that I, I registered for. You can see a printing of the Millennial Falcon from a couple of years ago. Oh, this isn't your machine. This is my machine. It is your machine. That's what I printed last night. Yeah, that's okay. a six oh. hour. That's a six hour uh, time lapse. Yeah, but if you go to the the, the other site I put on there, the Riverdale Wait, 3D. How is this the Millennium Millennium Falcon? That's it's not, not Millennium. No. Listen, that's a that's the Maltese Falcon. You said Millennium I, Falcon. I know. I said if you. Click on the link. Oh, did I? Yeah. Click on the link. Technically, I think he said Millennial Falcon. Millen- like, uh, like, the Millennial Falcon. Click on the link. He can fact check that one himself. Okay, see the link that I put there called Riverdale Makers? Yeah. You click on that, it takes you to a, a website with with my smiley mug on it. Oh, yeah, there they are. And yeah. on the sidebar, you'll see it says 3D printing Millennial Falcon time lapse. All right. And you can see you print. I have a Millennial Falcon above my, my computer here. You can see me printing that. And there's also a printing of the R2D2. 
too. Yeah. Shot on iPhone for those of you driving at home. So that's what I've been doing with my time during the uh, last couple of days anyway. I've been considering this sort of thing as a friend of mine, well, pre-pandemic, we're getting to this board game called Gloomhaven. Mm-hmm. You can think of it as being kind of like um, like a Dungeons and Dragons or maybe like Diablo because it's kind yeah. of like a, like a PC game, role-playing game, but in a board game format. Yeah. And I've been on the subreddits where people have like really cool setups because it comes with, you know, plastic game pieces. It comes with cardboard pieces. There are people who go wild with custom 3D printed terrain mm-hmm. yeah. and replacement characters that look way cooler. So yeah. I've definitely, it's not cheap. It seems like it'd be way more costly overall than if you were to like go to a store and buy some stuff if, if they had it. But, but since they don't, 3D printing seems like a, a cool thing that people are doing. And right now it'd be a really cool hobby to just sit and, and paint that sort of thing. Paint the terrain. Yeah, make my own toys. Like you can, the mm-hmm. thing is you can, you can use to, there's a bunch of free 3D apps. There's one called uh, SketchUp by Google. I mean, I've gone in and made, made parts for things, right? Um, like for my, tele- I made a iPhone holder for my telescope. I printed uh, a stand for my watch to charge. Um, I forgot I did a little uh, animation at the end of it, at the end of this um, thing where I made R2D2 walk around the, the uh, very end. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, it's uh, cool stuff. I mean, like I, I broke my, one of my Roombas broke, like the gear got stripped inside. And so I, I printed a, a replacement gear uh, with my, with my Roomba and it works. It still works to this day. That's cool stuff. You can actually use it for real life uh, things as opposed to just your toys. Right. So cool stuff you know. being done. You know, it's kind of interesting seeing um, uh, like artificial limbs and stuff being put out yeah. there, custom stuff yep. um, for, for people, animals, you know, like turtle, sea turtles getting new flippers and that sort of thing. Or well, people are making visors, you know, those, those, uh, those visors that people are wearing in front over top of their masks in uh, healthcare. Right. People are using right. 3D printers to make those as well. Yeah. It's cool stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What other exciting things have you guys been up to? What's exciting on Netflix or? Well, I haven't been watching much or... TV. I've been just working and playing poker. And, yeah. um, are you playing poker with buddies or? Yeah, online with buddies. Yeah. Oh, really? I'm in a couple Where of groups you? that we get onto Poker Stars and you can have, you can set up your own home game oh, just on Poker Stars with just, just the people that you want to play with. Yeah. That's like that competitor guy that you were competing against, right? Poker Stars? Competing against. What do you mean? Wasn't uh, Poker Teeny sort of like, was that the guy that was involved in Poker Teeny? Remember you had the, 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 the uh, Texas Hold'em guy or something like that? You told me about him once. No, wasn't that you? And I used to write poker apps, but yeah, yeah. I'm not sure what you're talking about. Wasn't one <laughs> of them popular and picked up by some guy and said, hey, this is a great app or whatever? Oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, a couple of the apps were, yeah, but... It wasn't the Poker Stars guy. It wasn't... wasn't po- I mean, poker Stars is a website, right? That does... Yeah. 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 It's... It, I don't I don't know who runs Poker Stars. Okay. Um, but, but, yeah, the app that you're talking about, I think what you're talking about is one of my apps, Chinese 13 Card Poker, was right uh, during the World Series of Poker in Vegas one year. Uh-huh. Uh, a lot of the pro poker players who yeah. are poker stars, but they have nothing to do with poker stars. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, there was there were a couple of videos on YouTube of them playing with my app and you know holding it up and showing showing their oh, yeah, hands cool. and stuff like that. Yeah, famous people that in the poker world you'd know. Yeah, Phil Hellmuth and people like that. I think was one of them. Mm. Cool. All right. Oh, gotta go set up my printer for its seventeen-hour uh, job. So, all right. I'll talk to you guys all right. later. All right. Talk to you later. See you. Okay. Bye. 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 Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to eighty percent less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.